It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in once again to This Frequency, Kubrick's Universe. Howard Berry is a filmmaker, broadcaster, film consultant, oral historian, and postgraduate film production course leader and principal lecturer in post-production at the University of Hertfordshire. He has worked as a VFX editor on a number of feature films, including Green Zone, Scott Pilgrim, Harry Potter, and Kick-Ass, as well as editing short oral histories on Jim Henson's Labyrinth and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Howard has worked as an editor on a number of highly successful independent films and has created content for the BBC as well as for DVD and Blu-ray special features. He has experience as a producer of short dramas and documentaries including the award-winning documentary On the Banks of the Bean. Most recently, he directed a documentary about 35mm Moviola film editing with Walter Murch and Mike Lee, which also involved filming with Stanley Kubrick's Steenbeck. Howard leads the Elstree Project, which is an oral history of the six film and television studios in Borehamwood and Elstree. His interviewees include Steven Spielberg, Simon Pegg, Brian Blessed, Sir Roger Moore, among almost 80 interviews with crew and cast members who worked on productions in the various studios from the 1950s to the present day. Howard is somewhat of a Stanley Kubrick expert and is a friend of and has worked closely with the Kubrick estate over the last 10 years on many Kubrick-specific projects such as the highly acclaimed oral history about the making of The Shining, Staircases to Nowhere, with several Kubrick family members and close collaborators. Howard was also commissioned to create two new video works to showcase 2001 Space Odyssey materials for the Deutsche Film Museum. In 2015, he conceived and organized the 35th anniversary of The Shining event, which reunited 26 cast and crew members. He launched the official Stanley Kubrick social media pages with a Facebook Live broadcast from the Touring Kubrick exhibition at the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco and was invited to deliver the second annual Kubrick lecture at the Design Museum in London. Howard also recreated the special effects of 2001 A Space Odyssey for the BBC's flagship magazine show, The One Show. For six years, he worked as the UK lead researcher for the recently released official book on the making of The Shining by Lee Unkrich. And we recorded this interview with Howie in March 2020. So, hello, Howie, are you there? Hi, yeah, I'm here. That makes me sound like I've been very busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I'm imagining you certainly must have been uh, based on that because I feel like, you know, rather tuckered out just reading all that. And I was just reading. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, it's been 10 years, I suppose, of doing this kind of stuff. So, uh, so there are lots of gaps in between, perhaps. Hmm. <laughs> Well, it doesn't sound like too many uh, to uh, to us, and and you know enough to uh, keep you busy with so many things, uh, Kubrick. So, and this is fascinating. So, I'm just gonna get into it, if I right. may. Yeah. How we just begin by telling us about the Elstree project and how you got involved with that. The Elstree project came about as a result of a Kubrick project, uh, and neither of which were really planned to be projects of any kind of scale really uh what what was happening was that there was going to be an exhibition of stanley kubrick in his hometown in st albans museum and i don't think they'd ever done an exhibition before uh and despite the fact that he'd lived there so Mm -hmm. it was it was going to be a, a special exhibition and the museum approached the university where i work to partner with them to collaborate on some of the content that they wanted to go into the museum. They had some of our uh, model design students uh, make kind of miniatures, um, uh, recreations of of some of the scenes from the films uh, and some Mm. things like that. And they asked the film course, what would we like to do? And a colleague of mine uh, spoke to me about it. And I said, well, why don't we interview people who worked with him uh, to to get the real story rather than try and make something up ourselves, you know, or, or you know, add to something when there's already people out there who could give the real sure. deal. Sure. So so we did some interviews with the Kubrick family. I knew Jan Harlan already. He'd been a friend of mine um, since earlier that same year, and uh, and so I went to Jan and said, Jan, do you think this would be possible to interview some of uh, Stanley's uh, family and collaborators, and he said, "I'll give you some names." <laughs> that was that. <laughs> so, um, so he was very keen uh, and said, "Yeah, <laughs> absolutely." He arranged for us to go and interview Katharina and Christiana uh, and uh, Tony Palmer, who was a good longtime friend of Stanley's, um, mm-hmm. and uh, several other people as well. We interviewed Sir Ken Adam. And Mm -hmm. then I got in touch with a group called Elstree Screen Heritage, uh, and they provided us with a further four interviewees. Oh, wow. So that was our little kind of mini bubble of Kubrick interviews that we did. And it was all Kubrick. The whole thing was specifically about Stanley Kubrick. And because I enjoyed that so much, and I'd had a pretty good time i think it has to be said getting (laughs) to listen to amazing people tell incredible production stories about someone who i thought was amazing uh i went back to elstree screen heritage and said look you know we had a lot of fun with this and uh the 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 four guys that you brought to me um you know could we do more and they said well i kind of think we've exhausted as many people that we can who know about stanley kubrick and I said, no, 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 not just Stanley mm. Kubrick. How about Elstree? Stupid me thinking it was one studio right. or, you know, just a small thing. 
and not right. realizing that at that point there was almost a hundred years worth of history in six different studios and demolitions and and all sorts of things that had gone on in the history of the studios there. So then suddenly they, their eyes kind of opened wide and went, "Are you sure?" And I thought, "What are you talking about? Of course I'm sure. Let's do it." <laughs> um, and then realized about ten interviews in, "Oh my gosh, this is a big thing." Um, You've opened Pandora's box. That was it. That was it. And I said, well, you know, they said, how many do you think we could do in a year? And uh, for us, talking about an academic year. So between October and end of April, really. And mm-hmm. I said, well, let's try and do two a month or so. And I think in the first year, we, we interviewed 14 people. Mm. And uh, yeah, it, we just didn't stop. We carried on for six years doing that. Uh, it, wow. So, That was kind of good fun. So that's how the Elstree Project came about. Um, and in fact, the first person that we interviewed under the official uh, kind of Elstree Project, not being what we were calling Kubrick Visions at the time, um, mm-hmm. we have a we have a strand of activity that we call Visions as part of the film course. So I, I kind of lumped it in with that. Um, the first person we interviewed was June Randall, who, of course, had plenty to say about Stanley Kubrick. It was all very, very long hours. But Jack Nicholson was brilliant on it. He never forgot a line, and he used to go back to his room, and he used to just, just he's fine. Everybody was very good, and I'll never the first day on that, this Scatman Crowther. And Stanley was said to me, go and t- see if he knows his lines. Okay. I was doing something. So I went up and said, excuse me, Mr. Crowther, do you know your lines? Are you okay? He said, I only do my lines with Mr. Kubrick. I said, oh, okay. So I went off somewhere. So Sonia, does he know his lines? I said, he'll only do them with you. So he went over to him. He said, when I tell someone like June to do something, that's law. I want her to do the lines with you. Oh, I am so sorry. Yeah. I'll do my lines. I'll do my lines. I, I couldn't get rid of him. Do you want to know my lines now? Do you? I said, no, we, I know your lines. You, you know, you're fine. You're fine. No, I'd like to do my lines. Anyway. One day we did a shot. He never knew his lines. The thing about June that I loved was that she had a glint in her eye when she would talk about a story and an anecdote about a personal relationship with anyone. It didn't matter who it was. Um, she really, you could see the kind of warmth and appreciation just kind of fill her face. And she was very much appreciative and warmed about uh, Stanley, um, which was so charming because she went through all sorts of interesting <laughs> episodes with him. Um, you know, she, she ended up working for him purely by accident. Um, you know, she got, she walked into his office and he kind of said, yes, I'll hire you. Uh, and, and you know, she wasn't looking for work at the time. She'd gone into the studio to visit someone who had, uh, I think they'd had maternity leave and they'd just come back. And she was, she thought she'd go in to visit them. And, and next thing she was in Stanley's office, um, saying, can you write notes and are you good at organization? And yes, thanks. You're hired. Um, wow. and that was a clockwork orange. Um, but yeah, she had some very fun stories about, you know, just his habits of how he would work. Um, and how he'd work the crew. And, uh, I think she told me that she, 
I think she had a Big Mac every every day for three months or something, <laughs> something like that. It just it was so funny because if the crew ate what Stanley ate, so Stanley decided that that right. would be like Big Macs. They had Big Macs, right? So and, right. and then because he was a creature of habit, he didn't change until he got sick of it. So yeah, imagine mm-hmm, that three mm-hmm. months every night, apart, apart from Fridays where they had fish and chips. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great and so it, it was fun talking to her like that because she she really lit up when she could tell stories like that mm. well it, it seems like uh she got the job uh somewhat similarly uh to how other folks got the job you know I've, we've heard stories of people finding their way into his office and after a conversation yes you're hired yeah I think it was. I think he was very good at assessing: is this person someone who can do something useful? Um, mm. Yes or no. And if the answer is yes, they're useful. They were hired. So. <laughs> right, right. Very intuitive, uh, as you know. It seems to relate to so many other aspects of what made him tick, for lack of a better expression. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. Now, the Elstree Project led to your amazing documentary staircases to nowhere so we here at kubrick's universe have seen and love this documentary um but for many of our listeners who have yet to catch up with it can you explain to them what this is and how it came about yeah so staircases to nowhere is it's almost an hour-long oral history of the shining and i tried to organize it in kind of chapters about either certain things that you see on screen, certain iconic moments or certain parts of the production. Uh, and it, it was a total accident that I made it, um, which sounds very weird because I spent a lot of time on it, but, but it, it came about completely by accident. I, um, was approached to, uh, conceive of a series of screenings of films made locally, um, at Elstree by the university. Uh, they had run cinema screenings in our auditorium previously, uh, but hadn't really drawn much of an audience. And they asked me, um, I'll just stop. The cat has decided to scratch the furniture. No, it's <laughs> there okay. We go. Right, there we are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I knew he would. It's okay. He's doing his thing. <laughs> yeah, he's making Listen, his presence felt. We so, all know St- Stanley loved cats. He perhaps did. you yeah, know that's, that's he's channeling him. <laughs> what 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 is what is your cat's name? His name's Milo. Milo, I love it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, Milo <laughs> might have something to say. He might contribute. Um, going back, so <laughs> screenings. Uh, yes, so the university had uh, previously held a lot of screenings in the cinema, and audiences weren't brilliant. I've got to say, they they were getting maybe. 20 people coming and to a 400 seater auditorium that feels very, very empty. So they mm. said to me, can we work with you? Will you come up with a program? Uh, you've been doing all this work on Elstree. Can we show some films made at Elstree? And I said, yeah, great. Let's do it. So I said, look, let's add a little bit of extra content though. It's fine just to put on a film, but that, you know, people can watch those on the TV all the time, or they've got them already on DVD. What's going to make this feel like it's worth coming out in the rain for? Uh, to a university campus. So I said, let, let's do an introduction to every single one with um, an expert and let's include clips from our archive of people who've worked on the films talking about the films. Uh, and so I deliberately scheduled uh, the first three films that we chose. Uh, one of them was Labyrinth. Then, oh, yes. Uh, we did Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Mm-hmm. And we did The Shining. 
And I deliberately picked those because we had crew members who had worked on those and not just one or two, but maybe three at least. So therefore I could cut together maybe, uh, you know, between a five and 10 minute oral history, just briefly to help tell the story of the fact that it was made in our local studio and it meant something to the local area. Uh, and that's why we were watching this film. So that's, so that's what I did. And the shining one, I got a little self-indulgent um, and made a 22 or so minute cut and, and didn't trim it. I thought, oh, well, they can sit through that and enjoy it or not. Um, but I, I had five five people in the cut um, for that first one. And afterwards, I released all three of these oral histories onto Vimeo. Mm-hmm. And within a week, we had 45,000 hits on The Shining. Wow. And I that with no publicity at all right Um, right i didn't tell anyone i was releasing them i just put them out there um and i just went onto twitter and said i've made this little video if you're interested in this film feel free to watch it that that was the level of publicity it got and so when we got forty five thousand hits in a week i thought okay there's (laughs) something in this maybe (laughs) people are interested in this subject so then i decided to go and recut this and also add more people to interview. Um, and so I highlighted a few names that I thought I might be able to get in contact with, um, including um, Doug Milsom, uh, mm-hmm. who was, I was particularly keen to meet anyway, um, and Brian Cook. And I added, I added another five people and recut it into about a 55-minute long oral history now. Uh, wow. And yeah. so that's, that's how it came about. It was, it was a complete freak accident. I had no idea anyone was going to be interested whatsoever. Um, and then when I did that, then I, I just again, just put it on Vimeo and, uh, Lee Unkrich very kindly had tweeted about it and he'd put it on the Overlook Hotel website that he runs. Um, and a few other people picked it up and then movies.com picked it up and wrote mm-hmm. a review of it bizarrely um where they said this this may just be the best um documentary or, or on the shining ever made which is hilariously ridiculous seeing as vivian kubrick was there <laughs> right right, right. The docu- so it's, i mean not only is that complete hyperbole and nonsense but it was it was at the same time i was like well they said it and it wasn't me so i'll take it thanks but sure. it was kind of it was a very bizarre reaction that i got that i wasn't expecting um and so yeah that was that was really nice and a lot of people have have still say to me that they've enjoyed it um uh, it's really weird you get two reactions people who really loved it and said i found it fascinating and other people who go well it's just a bunch of old people talking oh gosh <laughs> and i was like well right. it kind of is a bunch of old people talking but that's because we're talking about a film that was made 40 years ago so yeah you, you can't have oral history yeah you cannot have oral history without a bunch of old people talking but heaven forbid that's where you know some younger people actually gain some insight into their wisdom that's it but uh you know therein lies the heart of the matter <laughs> yeah and the thing is, it's a joy to go and talk to these people anyway. You know, I I am now a really good friends with Doug Milsom, and I, I consider that such a joy um, to have built friendships as a result of a project that mm. when I started the project, I just thought, wouldn't it be nice to once a month film some people talking about their work? 
That was that mm. was the intention. It was never, oh, we must be preserving history, or it was just, wouldn't this be a nice thing to do? And and I've got friends, lifelong friends, as a result of that, and um, and many of them from the Kubrick side of the project. Mm. Now, you know, many of our listeners, of course, do know who Doug Milsom is, being, you know, uh, Kubrick Files, either lifelong or... Uh, new to the uh, discipline, if you will. Mm. But for those who don't, would you mind just sharing a, a, a brief explanation of who this fascinating guy is? Yeah. So um, Doug Milsom worked with Stanley, I believe, on four films. One of the rare crew members um, to work on him repeat with him repeatedly. Um, he was a focus puller on Barry Lyndon, which I think must have been one of the hardest jobs ever in cinema. Um, mm-hmm. because the, the keeping focus on that film where if people moved a kind of centimeter out, they went out of focus must have been absolutely nerve wracking beyond belief. Um, and they invented an incredibly clever system where he had a video, uh, camera at an angle of 90 degrees to, to the main camera with a grid marked on the screen so that he could actually see when people moved closer or further away to the camera based on this grid and then remotely adjust the focus, which I think is, is ingenious. And then, mm. um, and then of course he worked on the shining. He was second unit camera operator for the, the shining. Um, and, uh, he went, uh, out in the snow and filmed the Timberline Lodge with Jan Harlan, who was the exec producer. Um, and he, he shot all of those shots of the, of the actual real hotel exterior. Um, from the ground. He, he didn't do the helicopter stuff, but he did the stuff on the ground. Um, and then uh, he moved up to become the director of photography on Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to think what else he worked on. It may be that he worked on Eyes Wide Shut as well. Um, he did I, have a credit on I'm Eyes Wide Shut. I'm not sure if he actually was just a... Um, I think he was just an advisor. I don't think he actually was on set because Larry Smith was the, was the DOP. Yes, yes, uh, yes. It was, a, it was a, a focus advisor, I believe, if not uncredited. Uh, so that, that, they, that makes, that makes sense. That makes sense. Maybe they were using certain lenses that Doug had used as part of Stanley's kit on previous mm. films. And they'd called him and said, you know, how did you do this? Or how, what, you know, what stuff did you work on that he's got in the kit room? <laughs> and Doug mm. probably said, Oh right. yeah, he's got this, this and this go and get those things. That's what you want. Um, it could be something like that. Right. And still, I mean, you know, having worked on four films with Stanley is, you know, quite a feat when you consider uh, all the variables, not the least of which, you know, Stanley's uh, propensity to introduce new talent into his crew as he moved along. He must have really had a good relationship with Doug. I think so. And you can see it in the, the behind-the-scenes photos that, that occasionally get passed around on the internet or The Shining. You can see Doug, he's very much involved because after he did the second unit shoot, he came back to the sets in Boreham Wood and he was a uh, focus assistant for Garrett Brown on the Steadicam uh, as well. And so he's he, he's in the background a lot in a lot of shots. And um, yeah, you, you could tell there must have been a very good relationship and atmosphere on set and when doug's certainly around there's a lot of smiles yeah yeah Uh, that's great um and you know with doug in mind you know there there must have been uh you know a great many other interviews that we can assume uh you enjoyed conducting and i 
you know, be loath if I forgot to ask, how many interviews roughly in total, Howie, um, did you conduct for uh, Staircases to Nowhere? And there's a second part to that question. <laughs> well, I think I must now have maybe 16 interviews. And if you're looking for the when am I updating the cut with the other six? Yes. <laughs> Is that what the second part was going to be? Um then um yeah i would still like to do that because i now have joe turkel i have the twins um mm-hmm. i'd love to do a recut um i'd love to expand it obviously i think the film now exists as it does and if i recut it i'd rather recut it into something maybe slightly different um and there's still people that i'd want to interview to make it special enough not that I'm saying the other people that aren't in the cut at the moment that uh, are not special enough to make it, but but I I you know I'd love to go um, and sit with Danny and talk to Danny because I've spoken to him many times um, you know through Twitter and things like that and he he was very kindly contributed to the 35th anniversary screening but uh, you know it would it would be something like that where I you know I'd want to really kind of say look here here we go here is now you know, X, Y, and Z are also now in it um, to, to give it a reason to have a, a new cut. I think, mm. I think, I think the interviews that I've done since can exist with a life of their own anyway, because Joe Turkel, as you've interviewed him as well, you know, he's a rather special guy and, well, yes. and an interview with Joe stands up on its own An interview with the twins is uh, an interesting experience all on its own mm. as well in the mm. most kind of incredibly crazy and, and exciting and fun mm. um, and kind of nuts kind of way. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, I think they probably can exist as an, as an accompaniment to what already is out there now, but yeah, maybe one day I'll come back um, and, uh, and, and do an extended extended cut, which is basically what that would be, because this this is well, already the extended cut. <laughs> well, you can just rebrand it as something like elevators to somewhere. <laughs> that that would be a good one. I mean, the the name came from Julian Senior, um, uh, Julian, who was uh, the Warner Brothers publicist, and before Warner's, he was MGM. So he followed Stanley as he moved. Um, it, it was he was the one who who said the line staircases to nowhere and it just kind of stuck out to me he's he was just remarking about how when you walk around the back lot of studios that's what you see a bunch of staircases all going nowhere mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> i love that yeah, maybe, <laughs> great title yeah it just it just stood out and i don't know why i picked it other than i like the sound of it because it you know it, it has no real relation to the shining elevators definitely does blood elevators to somewhere that could be uh, <laughs> Well, that was uh, Stephen's uh, joke. To be uh, fair and give credit, but you know the, um, the 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 title itself has always stood out to me because you know I've personally I've been uh, a fan of The Shining since about 1982, and when I discovered it, I was 12 years old, and um, you know there was something about watching the film i've said this before on the show that was more than any other aspect of it just hypnotic to me and it was upon repeated and repeated viewings that i began to look at the sets and just look at all of those 
staircases and the corridors and where are they going and like how you know how how big can this set possibly be (laughs) and i began to break it down at some point and see things that were much later you know examined in apart from other things of course the the room 237 documentary which people can have their own opinion of it that's fine but uh it it did seem to on a technical level confirm all those things that i had been looking at uh from the point of view of a viewer who has seen it umpteen times and you know looking at the staircases and just going well they 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 must go to nowhere <laughs> yeah yeah that's it. I mean, they you you know the the main staircase in in the Colorado Lounge. You must walk up it, and they had a balcony, sure. But after right. you kind of get out of sight of what the camera sees, yeah, it just probably drops off the edge. So. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's great, but yeah. you know, you always imagine that somewhere just hiding around the corner, you know, of those shots you don't see, must you know certainly be ambling about, shall we say, all the best people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I digress. So I did have a second part to that question, Howie. I mean, mm. r- roughly how many hours worth of footage um, about uh, The Shining were you able to uh, get for staircases? There's probably about 20 hours or so that that I cut down into the one hour Um because every interview is about two hours long. And when I decided to do the recut from the 20 minute version to the hour long version, um, the, the people that I interviewed afterwards, the net, those five extra people, um, they were deliberately to talk about the shining in particular. So, yeah, I mean, with Doug, I obviously spoke about other a- aspects of, of working with Stanley and with a few other people, I, I digressed into talking more about Elstree as well. But really the focus of each of those interviews was The Shining. So I think, yeah, it must be about 20 hours of content or so related to The Shining in, in interviews that I've got. Wow. Any yeah. plans to put that on Vimeo? It's all going on Vimeo within the next 18 months. Everything. The whole tw- the All, whole twenty hours. Not just that, the entire Elstree project, with wow. the exception of two or three interviews, which the Spielberg interview I can't publish publicly. Um, I'm allowed to use it myself, and people can come and come to the university and listen to it. But we have a separate agreement about how that can be mm-hmm. used. Um, mm-hmm. You know. It's Steven Spielberg. I did as I was told. <laughs> right, right, but, right. But, but um, pretty much everything else um, will be going live um, uh, starting from sometime this month. We'll be putting things up. And so all the names in the interviews page on the Elstree Project will eventually all become links. Um, and you'll be able to watch the full unedited interviews. And then after we've gone through and done all of those, then the next step is that there will also be an accompanying transcript um, in PDF format with timecode, which will then also go up alongside those as well. So, Howie, the Elstree Project, a home of one's own, celebrating Edgewarebury House Hotel. This is another really cool documentary, which has a Kubrick connection, namely being the location used for Alex's attempted suicide in A Clockwork Orange. So can you tell our listeners about this one? Yeah, uh, Edgewebry, 
I had an opportunity to go and visit the hotel because it had just been bought by Laura Ashley, the clothes company. Um, and that struck me as slightly bizarre. Um, I didn't know Laura Ashley did hotels, but they were, they were converting Edgewebury House, which had been, um, a hotel of some kind for numerous years, um, on the outskirts of Elstree. Uh, and so they invited us down to record the uh interior and exterior uh which was rather nice just before they'd opened so we weren't disturbing any of their guests uh mm-hmm. and Edgewebury has been used as the location for so many different films and of uh, being so close to the studios uh that, you know that must be largely the reason why but it, it it's it's kind of very old fashioned looking manor house very large manor house and it used to have a big kind of um ornamental flower bed in an oval shape like a roundabout at the front of it uh and it appeared in all sorts of programs like uh from the 60s randall and hopkirk deceased uh and the champions and the avengers uh mm-hmm. and a lot of these kind of really great cult tv shows um and then it was really the the, the um the devil rides out one of the hammer horror films which is set in almost entirely the second half oh, of the yeah. film is set in that house, uh, which is just great because it's really mm. spooky. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then later in A Clockwork Orange, it, it's uh, it's featured in A Clockwork Orange and Alex is locked up uh, uh, in the, um, I think in the attic. Um, and it's where he leaps out of the window uh, after not being able to take the the music being played anymore of course. Beethoven and, uh, and so he he leaps out of the window on the top floor and Stanley actually took his camera and threw it out of the window to get that shot that's what I uh, yeah. believe is the truth of that and it landed intact amazingly I think um so I believe um but that's how they did the shot of, of Alex f- throwing himself out of the window and that was right Bree. And of course, his camera would land intact because you know <laughs> why? Why wouldn't the fates be smiling upon him? Exactly <laughs> at all turns. What I liked about it was being able to visit it. I didn't appreciate from the film, from A Clockwork Orange itself, that um, you know because I'm so used to people building sets um, and things not being real when I watch a film. That actually, yes, that really they did really film up on that top floor. They really did throw the camera out of that window, um, and the massive drop that there is actually from how high that that window is, I had no concept of that um, until I actually had the chance to stand there in the grounds and look up and see see the actual window. Um, so that was quite a treat. That was that was quite a nice experience just to to relate to to the actual physical location of the film and stand on that spot. Hmm. Very cool. Um, so to segue into um, your next project uh, that you worked on, of course, the Shining 35th anniversary event in 2015, this was pretty widely publicized on uh, social media and the internet in general. And uh, I want to get to asking you about your personal experience with that. But firstly, um, I do know that Stephen, our producer, Stephen Rigg, was fortunate enough to attend this amazing event. And um, I want to hear from both of you. First, uh, Stephen, can you tell us what uh, your your memory is of uh, being there? 
Uh, yes, um, it was absolutely brilliant. What an event. Uh, the fact that uh, all those cast and crew members <clears throat> who, had, who had been reading about for so long, um, the fact that they, they were all there, a few of them even took to the stage for um, a kind of a short Q&A. Um, yeah, it, what an event. And, and seeing, the, seeing the film on the big screen, I think that mm-hmm. was probably the first time I'd seen The Shining on the big, big screen as well, yeah. So this was... Oh, really? I think so, yeah, 20, this was 2015. I've seen it a few times wow. since. Uh, yeah, I think that was, yeah, that was the first time I saw it on the big screen in 2015. And yeah, it was a wonderful event. Um, you did a great job of, uh, of pulling that one off, uh, Howie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was uh, it was a, an interesting achievement. <laughs> how long was uh, was that in the work in the workings um how, how how long did it take to get that together? I think it I think I suggested it um to to Lee Unkrich a year before it happened. Um I I think I said wouldn't it be nice if I could get some of these people together again uh, <laughs> and see if we can do that. And that, what I knew it was at least a year in advance because then, you know, I'd already made friends with so many of the crew. I, I knew Kelvin Pike very well, who was the camera operator. Um, I knew Doug and, uh, you know, by this point as well, I knew the twins and I'd been working with Lee Unkrich and had met him a couple of times out in California and. I wanted to do something for all of these people who had been so generous to me. Uh, and so this was what made sense, uh, which sounds like a very daft thing for, for, you know, to do such a huge undertaking. But the thing with with the oral histories and, and with the Elstra project was so many people had been so kind with their time and with their personal memories and, and to be, to be kind enough to share deeply personal memories with me, um, knowing, you know, that the point of the project is to share that. Um, I really did feel like I'd wanted to do something like that. And I particularly wanted to do something for Lee Unkrich, who had been extremely generous in inviting me to visit him in Pixar Studios, um, to talk about The Shining with him and, and his interest in The Shining um, and what he was looking to do at the time. Um, and I had introduced him to many of my interviewees, um, as an, in, given him an introduction to them. And so I said, well, look, you know, I've introduced you to them and you've kind of spoken to them maybe over Skype or in an email. Wouldn't you like to meet them? Um, and, you know, he said, well, yeah, sure. So that was enough for me to get the ball rolling. So it took a year. Um, I wrote to maybe 34 two or so crew members ended up with 26 confirming. Uh, I think on the day we ended up with 25, one suddenly couldn't make it um, due to illness, Um, but everyone else came. And one of the nice things was that I tried to keep this as up to date as possible on social media so that people knew it was going to happen because I didn't think this would happen ever again. Uh, and I thought this is the right time. A lot of these people are elderly. Um, we need to make the 35th happen. So I tried to let everyone know that I was going to do this event. I, I, I kept saying, you know, I haven't got a date yet. I haven't got a venue. <laughs> um, but if I could do this, would you like to come? And people all said yes. 
when let but can we is there a facebook group we could join or is there an event page that we can join which you can right. just keep updated and I, I so i i set that up um and then Jan and I went to the local cinema, the Odyssey, which had only just opened within the last year. In St. After, Albans. Uh, yeah, in St. Albans. Um, and it had been closed for over 20 years or almost 20 years. And it had only just reopened after a multi-million pound refurbishment. And Jan was one of the people who helped. Um, they, they did a call for people to, to donate. And Jan was one of the donors. So he knew the, the man who had led this refurbishment, uh, James Hannaway. And he invited me and James to a meeting where Jan said, Howard's got this event and we should screen it in your cinema. <laughs> and <laughs> James went, okay, who are you? When he looked at me, right. and I went, I'm Howard. Hello, I'm the one with the event. So, <laughs> so he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, we're going to do this. It's rather special. And he, and he kind of thought, looked at me and I think he kind of thought who on earth is this guy that Jan has brought um (laughs) you know so he said to me well no one knows who you are so you can't go on stage um and um you shouldn't introduce it it should be someone who's who's someone who they know um and I and I said "No, no, no hang on I've spent almost a year on this this was you know maybe two months three months before the screening happened so I'd spent nine months on it and, and everyone that I'd written to had said, yes, we'll be there. Um, so I kind of said, no, 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 this event doesn't happen without me. So I, I finally convinced him to allow me to introduce Lee to then do the Q and A, um, cause he didn't want me doing it. And that was fine. I didn't want to do the Q and A. Lee was much better to do that. Um, mm. but, but I actually had to fight to get on stage for my own event, which was very bizarre. Um, and I told them, Look, um, I'm I'm doing all this for free. I'm not paid to do any extra work like this, um, and I would really appreciate it if if we could set a price on the tickets that would involve some money being donated to the Elstree Project, so I can continue some activities. Because our trip to America, where we interviewed Spielberg and Joe Turkel and Walter Murch, had cost me personally over three thousand pounds of my own money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd taken five students with me to have that experience. Um, and he said, no, no, we sell our tickets at our price and we take the full amount. Oh, um, boy. And I was, I was very close to saying this isn't going to work. Um, mm-hmm. And I also said, you're going to get a lot of interest internationally for this. I hope that you're prepared for your ticket sales. And the <laughs> response I got from that was, no, no, we're a local cinema. We're lo- we, it, it's a local thing. Um, we'll only get local interest. And at the time, mm. they, they didn't have online booking. They only had telephones. Um, oh, gosh. They could take bookings. And I said, look, you're going to get phone calls. You believe me? You're going to get phone mm-hmm. calls. And I mm-hmm. it kind of was like, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Um, anyway... I emailed them the 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 day before I said the tickets should go live. I emailed them and said, "Look, just to remind you, you're going to get interest because I've now seen on the Facebook event page there are people who have definitely said they are coming and people who are coming from thousands of miles to be here." And again, it was ah. within seven hours they'd sold all 450 tickets, and people came from California and Canada and Texas and from Scandinavia and I don't know where else. But um, mm. that that was that was hilarious and lo- a lovely. It was so nice to have that support from people who wanted to come. Um, but it was kind of hilarious because 
when I went into the cinema two days later and said, how are the sales doing? I was met by two very worn out looking people um, <laughs> who kind of went, the phones didn't stop ringing. The phones never stopped ringing. Wow. <laughs> So you were right. Kind of you were right. We begrudgingly oh, no. admit. <laughs> I never got. We that. should I have listened to you. Yeah, of course not. Of course not. I, I don't want that. I wasn't looking for that, but it was funny. Um, so yeah, they sold out within just over seven hours, which was rather good. Um, I can imagine. And um, you, people who attended, only saw half the event because there was another half beforehand where I took all the crew. Elstree Studios invited us to be their guests. <laughs> And they very kindly uh, put on a buffet lunch for all the guests and their partners. Um, and of we Big Macs, not Big Macs. Big Macs, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> or, or fish and chips. Yeah, that's all we were like. <laughs> no, they put on a, a fantastic buffet, and I had the joy with Lee, who had his iPad with original photos that he'd been given um, by various people uh, of the sets and he was walking along the back lot with a group of them and they were pointing to trees and things saying that's where the exterior of this was that's where that was and the editors the naughty editors because I asked for a group photo and the four editors are not in the group photo because they snuck off into the building that we now call the Enigma building, um, which is where their cutting room was. And they broke in and went upstairs to look at their old cutting room when we were having the photo taken. Right at the moment you <laughs> needed them in the shot, of yeah. course. Well, typical editors, they edited themselves out. So Right. <laughs> so, you know, Gordon Stainforth was there and he's not in the photo and things. But, um, you know, it was uh, that I didn't mind. And we all had cake. I had a special cake made, which was um, uh, a red velvet cake, but it was covered in yellow shining poster coloured yellow icing and I got Jan to cut it with a plastic toy axe and when you cut in of course all you could see was the red so he thought that brilliant. was really funny. brilliant brilliant he initially looked at me and said Howard what is this nonsense with this axe and then when I told him that he couldn't put the axe down and he was like a child in the sweet shop so that was quite funny oh that's great so we that's had a so lovely cool. visit yeah it was it was fun and it was well, it was very kind of Elstree to host that and uh, and provide that for us. And then we had a coach company who gave us a, a double decker bus for free, who couriered all of us from the studio to the cinema um, to then arrive for everyone else. And Warner Brothers paid for the logo boards that people were getting their photos in front of. Mm. Um, and they, you know, it added to it. It made it feel very special. I was, I was. I was supported by so many people to make that happen. Um, you know, Jan and the Kubrick family, the cinema, <laughs> despite the issues I had with them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'd still go back to the many, you know, for something else in the future. I think, you know, it worked. So, you know, that's all that matters. Um, now, the, the, the double-decker bus, yeah. uh, is it safe to assume that uh, uh, the ghost of Stanley forced the Warner Brothers executives to remain on the bus? And not come near the set. Uh, <laughs> well, the, the, the Warners um, people were all there at the studio as well. They were they were doing a very good job looking after guests, um, and it was the least I could do to give them a nice lunch. Thing as they gave me the an extremely brand new pristine um, DCP of the film to screen at the cinema. Oh and, yes, uh, I mean it was a it was a fantastic quality print that we got, um, and Warner's gave that to us. So. So, Howie, uh, 
In regards to the 35th anniversary of The Shining event, most of the guests uh, that attended were, of course, based in the United Kingdom. But then Garrett Brown, inventor of the Steadicam, and Lee Unkrich, uh, we can assume came over from the U.S., um, can you tell us uh, a bit about what it took to get them over there and anything else you want to share? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Both both Garrett um, and Lee traveled from the US and Diane Johnson as well traveled, uh, I believe, from Paris to be there. Um, and it didn't take much for them to come. I said, would you like to come? And the answer was yes. <laughs> it was <laughs> what I was saying about people being so nice is that's exactly it. You know, Garrett didn't ask for any expenses, anything. He came and it was just, I'd like to be there. Thank you so much for inviting me. Mm. Um, And I'd met Garrett maybe four or five months previously um, in which I had descended upon him in his hotel um, at very short notice to do an interview. Um, And we, we did it in a bar in the hotel in the morning where there were people drilling holes through the wall uh, so it was it was not the most ideal of circumstances and he could have thought who is this complete nitwit uh, <laughs> and yeah you know I said we're going to do I want to do a reunion I'm planning this reunion already for the last six months would you come it's going to be around the date of the release in May Nick and he just said yes absolutely right there and then um, so it didn't take much to get them to come everyone was just so nice and of That's course great. of course when I said to Lee um Lee, you know, I'm doing this. He said, right, well, I'll have to make sure I get my my time off work then. And that hmm. was that. So, um, yeah, it was great. And also to add to, to the fact that with Garrett Brown coming, Tiffin, um, the company who now have the license for the Steadicam, um, uh, provided us with the original Steadicam that Garrett used on the set, um, which we were able to display um, on the stage at the Odyssey Cinema uh, as well, which was a real treat. And they provided that again. Um, they turned up with it on the day, set it all up for us, um, and looked after it again. No money, didn't want a penny. Um, wow. Too just, cool. Just happy to do it. Too yeah. cool. And, uh, you mentioned Diane Johnson flew over from Paris. Yeah. Uh, Diane Johnson, of course, she played, um, you know, a pivotal role in uh the script and working with Stanley um a very massive part in getting uh what we all know as the the final version of the the film and its dialogue etc um she got that uh brought to fruition of course uh working with uh Stanley the two-fingered typist uh, that we've uh, so um what are some of your recollections of being able to uh, chat with her about her experience on The Shining? Well, I didn't get much of a chance to talk to Diane because what had happened was that I, she's not one of the people that I filmed an interview with, um, but I reached out to her thanks to Lee, who gave me her contact information, and he'd been in touch with her um, and had clearly spoken to her quite a lot about the the making of the film and the writing of the script. I'd seen numerous script drafts um, from having scanned them uh, in the archive. And so when I invited Diane to come, uh, one of the nice coincidences was that she uh, and Lee got on the same train to come up to Boreham Wood for um, for the screening that day. 
So, um, I, and I think that was the first time they'd met in person, having spoken for so long. So um, that was a very nice, happy coincidence. And so they arrived at the studio together uh, for the lunch. And that was the first time that I met Diane as she arrived um, from the station. And so I got to talk to her a little bit about um, about her contribu- uh, contribution to the film and the work that she did and, and what it was like. But I didn't really get to go as in depth because then another 25 people arrived um, who all had to, um, you know, be told, come in, there's food, let me show you around. By the way, hi, I'm Howard, I organised this thing. Um, so... Um, so I didn't get that much of a chance to talk to her. And then I, the, you know, I asked her, would you be kind enough to be one of the guests in the Q and A on stage? Um, of which Lee led. So I let, you know, again, Lee, um, spoke to her about the script writing process with Stanley. Um, and I, I quite rightly kept well out of it. <laughs> so that was, um, that was my level really of interaction with Diane. Interesting. Um, were there any guests uh, that come to mind that uh, were not able to attend? I believe uh, Dan Lloyd sent uh, he, in a video piece uh, to be screened. Dan Lloyd, we'd invited. Lee had invited him on my behalf. Um, and um, he had just, I think his wife had just given birth to their fourth child at the time, um, who I think was only maybe two months old. Um, and so he said, look, I really would love to come. It's, it's a lovely invite and in normal circumstances. Yes, I would, but I can't do it. And Lee passed that on to me. And I said, that's absolutely fine. I totally understand that. Do you think it's cheeky if I ask him to send a message instead that we could either read out or even better that we could play if he got his wife or partner to film it on a mobile phone? Hmm. And as a result, we got a video from Dan, which was just a lovely surprise for the audience because I didn't tell anyone it was happening. Oh, that's um, awesome. It was. Oh, so- it really was great uh, <laughs> when that appeared on screen, yes. And he, he got his little, uh, one of his uh, younger sons to uh, ride a tricycle <laughs> in the video. He did. He, re- he really thought about how to make it special. And, um, yeah, it ends with his son... Um, on the little tricycle and he follows him out and it's yeah it was a lovely little touch and it was a sweet message and um, just very kind of Dan to do that um, because you know he didn't know me uh, other than again we'd spoken over Twitter a little bit but um, yeah out of his own generosity and time uh, he made that video and it made everyone stay in the cinema we all really enjoyed it so um, it was just such a nice thing for him to be able to do uh, as he couldn't be there himself Hmm. Well, I want to ask um, on Mark's behalf, uh, Mark Lentz, our uh, great contributor, uh, wonders uh, who took that fantastic photo of everyone on stage at the event? So I'm lucky. I have a very lovely friend who's a photographer called Isla Desai. And I said to Isla, I'm doing this event you're coming, aren't you? And she said, of course. And that was that. So Isla documented the whole event. I, in fact, had two students film the event. No one's ever seen the footage. Um, what? I've never seen the footage because it's, I've, I've got it. It's not that they never gave it to me. I've got it, but I, I was so tired that I thought, I'll look at that later. 
<laughs> and later it turned into five years. Yes. And um, now that it's the 40th anniversary, maybe that might be nice to do something with it because we filmed the Q&A. I don't know what the sound's like for that because it was difficult with the getting a feed with the cinema being a bit funny. Mm. Um, but we filmed the whole tour of the backlog of Elstree as well um, with the guests um, that no one's seen. And Isla took a lot of wonderful behind-the-scenes photos with all the guests celebrating and having cake and Jan with the axe. I released a few of those on the day or just after the day. Um, but a lot of it, yeah, people haven't seen. Uh, I feel very lucky that I have Isla because she has done photography for me for a number of events, but that one was particularly special. Um, and yeah, maybe now I need to dig this out and make some of this available. Um, I am actually working with the official Stanley Kubrick social media to do some content for the 40th anniversary. Um, and th they approached me to do about five or six different things across this year. Um, and I forgot to even mention that I had this footage. So maybe, um, I'm just going to add to my workload, but, uh, maybe I'll go back to them and say, by the way, I've got all of this. Let's use some of this as well. Yeah, I think you should. <laughs> I mean, they'd be champing at the bit, I would assume. Um, well, no, I mean, I, I I, can certainly see that going forward. I mean, if, well, not to be presumptuous, but if they're wise, they would certainly uh, avail themselves of what you're offering. Um, and, you know, just as a footnote for our listeners, it is worth mentioning that uh, the cinema in St. Albans, where this took place, uh, which hosted the 35th uh, event, uh, does have a very apt name. Of course, the cinema at St. Albans is called The Odyssey. That's right, yeah. Chosen specifically to recognize the fact that Stanley and the family still are in the, in the city of St. Albans. Mm -hmm. Real quick, uh, for our listeners who... Uh, may not be aware of Lee's connection uh, between the Toy Story films and uh, Coco and his other great works for Pixar and his connection to uh, The Shining and the website he runs, theoverlook.com. Um, can you uh, give our listeners a bit of insight into Lee and or how he uh, came to either your attention or how he came to be involved with um, the Shining as his own passion project. What were you able to learn about him? Uh, yeah, so I first um, heard of Lee through his work at Pixar. I had no idea that he was a Shining enthusiast, which is an understatement to say the least. Um, and I was following him on Twitter. And I, when I was younger, I wanted to be an animator before I found an interest in editing. I'd wanted mm. to be an animator, and uh, so Pixar films w had been of, of a big interest to me, and Lee had been the editor of the first Toy Story film. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I was interested in him as someone who not only worked in animation, but also was an editor too. So there were two things of interest to me that combined. So I just happened to be casually following him on Twitter in the early days of Twitter. Um, and, you know, that kind of was just sitting there. And one day I saw him tweet something about The Shining. Uh, I can't even remember what it was, but I know that he mentioned The Shining in a tweet. Uh, and it was about the time when I had made Staircases to Nowhere, the original 
short version. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote to him and said, hello, Lee. Um, I work uh, in the UK and I've made a little oral history of a bit of The Shining and perhaps you'd be interested. And I, and I put the link in the tweet. Um, and that was that. Then next thing it was, wow, how did you do that? Who have you met? Who do you know? You know, it was, it was great because then he, you know, he was instantly interested. I, I told him about the Elstree project, which was three years in at that point. Um, and, uh, and what I've been doing and that I knew Jan very well. Jan and I are very good friends. Um, uh, and, um, that I go to dinner with Jan at his house frequently and, and that I have, you know, that kind of connection, but I also have access to the studio, which because Elstree Studios have been so good to me and allow me access. So I told him all of these things. And so he got very excited, um, because he, The Shining is the film that made him want to work in films. Um, mm-hmm. When he saw The Shining, he decided that he wanted to be a filmmaker himself. So it it means a lot to him, The Shining, on that in that respect. Anyway, um, the fact that he you know he's he loves the film itself as well. Um, and, you know, it didn't just spark off that one thing, but he um, is truly, truly obsessed with the film, um, uh, and has the resources to be obsessed with the film as well. Having you know made some of the best animated films of all time, um, you know he he has a, a real passion, which he's been able to pursue. And so I was um, taking myself on a holiday. This was 2012. It must've been. Um, I took myself on a holiday during the summer. I hadn't had a holiday from work for ages and I felt rather tired. So I thought, <laughs> I know what I need. I need a holiday. And I wanted to go to San Francisco. I'd never been. So I booked a trip to San Francisco and said to Lee, I am coming out to San Francisco. And he wrote back and said, right, I will meet you is there any chance you can bring all of your interviews on a hard drive with you? Oh, wow. So I took the Elstree Project drive with me to San Francisco um, and um, got the bus from uh, uh, near where the Bay Bridge is in San Francisco, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. over across to Oakland, um, and it stops outside Emeryville. um, And that's where Pixar Studios is. And uh, I was met by Lee's uh, then assistant, um, who um, walked me into Pixar Studios. uh, And, of course, I just walked around with my mouth wide open, going, Hmm. ah, (laughs) like at everything. Um, Especially as soon as you walk in, there is a very large glass cabinet filled with a million Oscars and things like that. Right, Um, right. It's very. You walk into this huge atrium, and it, it's just absolutely incredibly impressive. I think at the time it was decorated with all kinds of Celtic knots because they were releasing Brave at the time. Oh, interesting! And so they, right. they redecorate the that central atrium depending on what film is coming next, and so it was decorated with all these kind of um, yeah Celtic kind of designs and knots and things for Brave, um, and then this guy comes walking towards us. And uh, and he says, hello, I'm Lee. Um, thank you very much. And would you like to see a little bit of the studio? <laughs> Which, of course, I said, yes. And he gave me a kind of walking tour and said, can we keep your drive for a few days? Um, and uh, and this that was actually my birthday, um, the day that I went out there. So that was quite a good birthday present. Oh, and, and there I was, you go. I, I said, yeah, you, you could keep the drive for a few days. Um, 
So they copied um, everything on it, I think, off. He had his assistant copy everything. Um, and then they gave it back. And so then I, you know, we carried on talking after I went back home. Uh, I'm just and- amazed the uh, the baggage the baggage claim uh, <laughs> in the states didn't lose you know such precious cargo. I took that in my hand luggage. I didn't take any risks with that one. I wasn't letting anyone put that in. the Can't halls. blame you. <laughs> but then, yeah, Lee and I carried on talking. So Lee is uh, Lee. Eventually, Lee came round to saying he wanted to do a book. Um, on the making of The Shining. And, you know, he'd given me some contacts by that point, people that I'd not been able to find or get in touch with that he'd had success with. I gave him contacts that I'd had success with that he hadn't found. When he came over, when I did this um, 35th anniversary event, which we called Forever and Ever, um, the day before we met up with Kelvin Pike, we went to Kelvin's house um, so that Lee could meet him uh and uh borrow his personal scrapbook of photos uh that uh Shelley Duval gave him um so that Lee could scan it and things like that. So so I've been Lee and I have become very good friends. We talk very regularly. Um or, you know, I would say every week we talk. Um every now and then he'll send a text completely out of the blue with a photo that I've never seen of something absolutely amazing, which I'm not allowed to tell anyone about, which is so irritating. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, what? What? You know, right, <laughs> the next right. thing we pick up the phone and start talking about it. Um and he does things like that. He's it's brilliant. He he's he's found so much stuff that no one has ever seen on The Shining. Um, yeah, well, because, I have to. I have to ask. Yeah. I mean, because uh, not to interrupt, but it's been some time now that uh, there's been word uh, on social media and so forth that uh, Lee is involved heavily with the creation of what may be the definitive book the on The book. Shining, the, the book yes. from from yeah. of course the the inimitable Toshin Publishing. So, That's it. Yeah. are you able to share anything at all about when this is coming? Because it's one of those please take our money type things at this point. <laughs> well, it's not my project, so I don't want to overstep the mark. But Lee has already said on Twitter, the book is coming. Um, the manuscript has been written. So the text is all written. Um, I've seen um, one of the most recent drafts of the manuscript. Um, and... Uh, and I was very lucky to be able to even correct something. I felt like I actually had some sort of valuable input where I changed a line. So there we are. <laughs> oh my god! I but, feel like um... <laughs> quoting. I feel like quoting Monty Python. You lucky, lucky <laughs> bastard. Well, it comes with having a very sore shoulder for several years from scanning. Um, <laughs> it, it, when we set up this project, and when I say when we, I say Lee actually. When Lee set up this project to do the book, we arranged that he would discuss it with Jan um, and then the Kubrick estate uh, to get permission that, that he wanted to do the book, but he wanted to do it only if it could be the one with the best access to the archive and, and do it properly um, of course. to the level of the previous Tashin releases. And so that was agreed. Um, and then because of, Lee's location and because of my location um, Lee arranged that I would be the one on his behalf to go down to the Kubrick archives in London and I would go down with a list that he'd sent me in an email from the um, from the archives directory um, with all the right numbers for all the documents that he wanted signed uh, scanned 
and I would spend days there scanning mm. page after page after page after page on their scanner. And so I was in quite a lucky and privileged position, thanks to Lee and thanks to Yan, that because Yan knew me and trusted me and Lee had requested for me to do this, Mm-hmm. I was allowed actually into the archive itself. Most visitors have to stay outside into the kind of, there's a research area there where people mm-hmm. sit, but I was actually given a uh, key fob and allowed to walk into the, the actual archive room itself and wow. be able to take things off the shelves um, and put them on the scanner and scan everything and put them back and then pick up the next box and scan everything and put it back. Um and that's that, like that's like having the 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 gold headpiece for the staff of Ra in Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark. They gave you a key fob, whereas yeah. everyone else is allowed to kind of sift through material and they and let I, you scan everything. I think they only let you scan twelve things as well. So um, incredible. Yeah, Howard actually knows uh, Ron Punter, who actually does own one of the, <laughs> the uh, staff of Ra. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even more synchronicity there you there go. You go made at elstree um but, of course but yeah so i so look i was very very lucky it wasn't like i had carte blanche it had to have you know lee had to say to the archive these are the things howard's going to look at um but it was it was a given that the permission had been granted so i spent almost five years um you know, obviously not every day. I was there, you know, for maybe a week every three months wow. or four months or something like that. And then I go in and do another week. Um, wow. And, and Lee would come back with another list uh, and say, can you get this? Can you get that? Um, can you um, see what else there is? Can you? And so that's what I was doing, which was a great joy because I got to read and look at all the archive material as well whilst I was scanning it for him. Um, and so... Yeah, so I think it's only fair enough I got to read the manuscript. But the manuscript has got lots of interviews, including those Elstree Project interviews that Lee took from me back in 2012. One of the first pages quotes my interview with Christiana Kubrick. Um, which mm. I, I was greatly honored to, you know, I'm reading this first page and all of a sudden there's words from Christiana that I recognize and I went, that's my interview. And, you know, so wow. a big honor to, to have that. But there's lots of other people's interviews that Lee's had permission to include as well. But Lee himself has done his own research. I mean, you introduced me and, and it's quite right that on, on my website, it says I'm the lead researcher for this book, um, which Lee very kindly has allowed that for me to have that credit. Um, but if anyone's the lead researcher, it's Lee. Lee has found the most incredible photographs and material that have never, ever been published. Mm. And then down the line, there will be what they call the trade edition, um, which will be the, the the version that I can actually afford, <laughs> which I will probably end up buying. And we're going to do a launch. We're going to launch the book. Um, and I was at the, the 2001 launch that took place at Jiddikbri, um, with Jan and Christiana and, uh, and that was lovely. Um, and I think the book for 2001, that was around 450 pounds, 500 pounds. It was in a huge box. Um, and I remember one guy bought about eight of them to take home on the plane. And I thought he must have booked the whole aisle, um, in order to accommodate <laughs> it. But right. we, we, Lee, Lee and I have spoken. We're going to do a launch. We're going to have a party when the book is launched because I think now, if I'd been working on it probably for about 
six or seven years. Lee's probably been working on it for maybe eight or nine years. So that's a long time. So it needs we need to have a bit of a party at the end of that. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, real quick, um, for our listeners, um, and hopefully we'll get the chance to ask Lee himself this at some point, but for our listeners, could you maybe uh, mention some of the homages to Stanley in Toy Story uh, 2, 3, 4, and five now and and of course and coco um of course we know these but for our listeners uh anything in particular that uh beyond the 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 shining hexagonal carpet pattern uh what else do you see when your eyes cast over shots in the in his pixar works well i know that in toy story 3 which was the one that lee directed um that there the screen name, um, they have an online chat and the Triceratops character, her screen name includes the numbers 237. Right. In her screen name. And yeah, of course, yeah, the carpet and things like that. Um, in Toy Story 4, which was directed by Josh Cooley, who I've also got to know, um, they uh, even have the music, um, Midnight, the Stars and You is playing mm-hmm. uh, uh, as they go into the antique shop and things like that. So, um, I mean, there's, I think in Coco, I watched Coco with a fine tooth cut. I was stopping almost on every shot. Right. right. I was like, where is, where is the shining reference? Yeah. 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 Cause I knew he would do it. And I think it completely passed me by. I think there is a shot in the street, um, where Miguel lives, where they have barrels of red rum. Okay. I think right. It's, it's that, you know, the, the barrels are painted red and they've got rum in there. It's that. Subtle. Okay. It was sure. Just, so, but yeah, there, there's a lot of shining references that are interwoven throughout Pixar's films. Um, the, the music in Toy Story 4, they, uh, the team put that in, um, as a joke and it was never intended to be used. And Lee had done a pass of the edit. Um, and you know, and, or I think that's when he first heard it. I can't remember whether he first heard it then or whether he attended a screening. Um, and he was amused by it. Um, it was never going to be in the finished film. And in the end, they bought the the rights to use it because they liked it so much. <laughs> no, no, but we are looking for a lost toy. She's a figurine, used to be in that lamp in the window. Name's Bo Peep. Bo Peep? Oh, yes, I know Bo. You do? Hop on in. We'll take you to her. Oh, well, you don't have to do that. <laughs> well, okay. Vincent, be careful with our new friends. Oh, what service? Uh, thank you for your help. I haven't seen Bo in years. May I ask, when were you made? Me? Uh, I'm not sure. Late 50s? <gasps> Me too! Gee, I wonder if we were made in the same factory. Wouldn't that be something? I gotta say, you are in great condition. Well, I try to stay active. And look at that! You have a voice box like me. Benson, show him. Oh, that's that's really not necessary. Now, I want to uh, jump ahead to 2019, of course, when uh, the BFI held the Kubrick season. And, uh, of course, I was not fortunate enough uh, to attend, but Stephen was, and I'd like to bring him in for part of this question. But the BFI in London 
uh, from what we understand, put on a marvelous season to celebrate the films of Stanley Kubrick. And you did attend uh, the festival, of course. Can you tell our listeners about that and some of uh, what were the personal highlights for you? Sure. Um, when the Kubrick exhibition was coming to the Design Museum, uh, it was obviously natural that there was also going to be a program of screenings and, and where better to do that than the BFI. Uh, so it was it was lovely to see that the BFI were going to screen all of Sandy's films and they were going to dedicate a number of events around that as well with guest speakers. And I had the good fortune to be invited by the, the family to join them for uh, an evening with um, Malcolm McDowell who was mm-hmm. in absolutely fine form that evening and, and um, was full of wonderful, joyful anecdotes um, and uh, mm. some very, very entertaining stories um, about his career and how his path happened to cross with Stanley and and, uh, and everything that went into the making of A Clockwork Orange. Uh, and by the way... Uh, after that, I, I was walking down Notting Hill Gate, and there was my friend Ian Holm, and he said, what, what are you doing? He said, I'm going off to do this movie with this Stanley Kubrick, this American. And he went, Stanley Kubrick? Huh. Be careful. <laughs> he goes, he's promised you a part, right? And I went, well, yes, uh, uh, he's offered me this part, and uh, you know, we're shooting in a month, I think. And he said, well, listen, he offered me Napoleon. 18 months he kept me on a string and then he never then I couldn't get him on the phone so I went and then having known Stanley of course that makes perfect sense and, um, anyway I just thought and so that was a real treat, um, which I, I greatly enjoyed. And it was very nice to have been invited to that. Um, and I was there also, there was another, um, event where there was a more of a broader launch of the season in which Katharina, um, and Jan were both on stage guests. Kirk Douglas was so impressed by Kubrick that he then, who was in charge of Spartacus, really asked Kubrick to take over. Uh, and, and direct Spartacus and uh, many, many things in Spartacus are absolutely fabulous. It's, it's brilliant. Uh, it isn't really a genuine Kubrick film, uh, but it's okay. You know, it's a wonderful film. It was quite tough. It wasn't um, and uh, and we all went out as a family, the the, the Kubrick family, um, and some of the organisers from the Design Museum and the BFI. Uh, we all had a, a a very nice dinner afterwards, which I was again allowed to be an interloper, having contributed to nothing. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> so that was a that was a very nice treat, um, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a fantastic season. The BFI. Um, have a great cinema. They, they always do these things well. And the design museum, the exhibition, um, in the design museum, which, you know, everyone knows the traveling exhibit and it changes depending on wh- who hosts it. Um, and, and they did a, a marvelous job of that as well. Um, and I, I ended up going for the launch of, of that with the family again, um, as their guest. And then I went back twice more. I went once with Lee when Lee came over for a week in, in the summer, um, to spend a week at the archive, uh, scanning. Um, he, he brought with him this most huge Hasselblad 
uh, drum scanner for scanning film negatives, um, which he brought with him on the plane, um, which I just, it's unbelievable. The, the weight of the thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he was, um, he was there every day during the week and on the weekend, um, they're closed. So we went to the design museum and so he got to see the exhibition and, and, uh, he and I walked around and had a look and he pointed out numerous errors in things that were being described in the shining part of the exhibit, which was quite fun. Um, of course he did. <laughs> we still, we still quite haven't got to the bottom of who writes these things. So, um, I need to write to the Frankfurt Film Museum, who are the originators of the, the whole touring exhibition and find out whether there is a, a kind of preset text that they provide to the museums and the hosts. And that's what they use or whether each place writes their own. I have a feeling there's, it's a bit half and half. Um, but Lee went around and read something and went, that never happened, or that's totally wrong. <laughs> and that's amazing. I was, I was kind of entertaining myself by listening to that because, yeah, I mean, he was absolutely right. And one of the things that always gets on his nerves um, is the axes that they display, the ones that are kind of half into the wall. Um, mm-hmm. um, and and it doesn't ever say what they are. It just says, you know, axe from the film. Um, but they're not the they are a special effects axe. It was a deliberate special effects axe. Right. Um, which is the, the one without the, the tip so that it had two screws in it, which impact with a, uh, bladder that is underneath Scatman Carruthers coat. So that right, it's right. filled with prop blood. And when, when the axe hit it with these two screws that are pointing out, um, they pierced the bladder and made the blood come out. Um, and also the handle has, is hollow and has a tube and the tube goes down to a squib of blood so that that could be squeezed at the same time as the impact happens so that blood bursts out um, from the top. So it goes all the way up the handle through and out into the top of the axe as well. But they don't say that. And it's one of Lee's pet peeves, um, that these, these great fun prop axes are there, which actually had a very specific use, not just, you know, it, here's an axe he chopped down the door with it, but this is a proper special effects axe. Um, mm. And it's, yeah, it's one of Lee's pet peeves. So we had a good old talk about that as well. Um, and, uh, and yeah, a few kind of little things that we pick up as we walk around. I've, I've been to the exhibition three times now and twice with Lee um, because the other time with Lee was of course in San Francisco. Um and uh yeah it's always interesting when you go with another expert and, and i mean someone who's even more of an expert um which is such a delight um who can you know point out things that you don't know still um and you can still learn from something from that so so that was fun and then the third time i went back to the design museum i was invited to give the annual kubrick lecture which i gave on the subject of the shining and how the shining was made well that i mean that thing with Lee and the axes is a really cool anecdote. I mean, <laughs> in, in the sense that, uh, you know, if it's a pet peeve of his, you know, he's certainly entitled to it being an expert. But I mean, uh, we shan't, we shall not go as far as calling that splitting hairs. Sorry, terrible pun. Sorry. <laughs> not with an axe, anyway. Not yeah. with an axe. That's very <laughs> difficult. We'd have to be talking about a very large hair. <laughs> But but yeah, I mean, if, if if it's part of this permanent tour and they are something quite unique, 
I kind of feel he's right. You need to label it properly. So I, I'm inclined to agree. I think yeah. we all are. That's you know, it's it it is uh, important. It does matter. I mean, especially when you're talking about archival material from you know who we feel is the greatest filmmaker of the 20th century. You're talking yeah. about you know stuff that does matter. It's not minutia, um, and you know. I um, had not personally heard that story before. I might have read something about uh, the way that the uh, the squib was used and and mm. uh, connected within the axe, but uh, the way you described it was was fascinating. That's that's <laughs> exactly what uh, you know. We're always hoping to be able to bring to the listeners and and learn more about ourselves. So thank you. That's great. Oh, pleasure. And you know, Lee owns the jacket that Scatman Crothers is wearing at the point that he gets the axe through him as well. Oh. So. <laughs> okay, of course, of course he does. Um, he probably wears it around San Francisco. <laughs> you know, pops into the occasional, like, it pops into coffee shops to see if the occasional barista says, hey, why is there a hole in the front of that jacket? And that wouldn't happen to be the jacket from The Shining, would it? <laughs> I, think I bet he's he. Got, that, and it's not the only one he has. I think he has a few other costumes as well. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I want to uh, ask you about uh, the two new video works that you were commissioned to create uh, to showcase 2001 A Space Odyssey. You did work on these materials for the Deutsche Film Museum. Um, can you tell us and our listeners a bit about. Uh, the two works that you produced for the exhibition? Yeah, this was quite a nice surprise to be asked. Uh, I knew that um, the Film Museum in Frankfurt, they were going to be doing a special uh, exhibition where they were going to pull out all of the 2001 material from the touring exhibition and add to it um, to, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of 2001. Uh, and I hadn't given it much thought other than that sounds cool. I'd like to go. And then I was approached by them to make two new video pieces, uh, which showcase two different uh, illustrative sides of the film. So one was, um, an illustrator who had actually, uh, been on the set and had drawn illustrations of the crew and the cast in costume and behind the scenes in great detail. Um, and there were, I don't know, at least 50 or so of these drawings. And the other uh, set of images were Christiana's alien concept paintings um, and ink drawings and pencil drawings and things. And there were, Oh gosh, well over 250 of those. And I was, I was asked if I would make a video for each of them, um, with some kind of movement and fluidity to them so that it didn't just feel like a kind of slideshow. Um, and so Jan had a concept in mind in which he quite liked this idea of it going into the image and then pulling out and it's a completely different image, uh, and things like that. So I did my best to incorporate, um, all of those elements into what they were after. I want, I obviously, I didn't want it to move so much that you didn't get an idea of what it was you were looking at before it changed again. Um, but yeah, I had a lot of fun because it, it was completely different 
to what I'd previously made uh, for um, for the exhibition or anything um, related to my Kubrick work. Um, and uh, I, I had about four months uh, to do it. At the same time, there was a video being made by the in-house video team at Warner Brothers in London mm-hmm. who, were, who were doing a video in the same manner on the background plates um, in the desert. So all the original photographs that were taken um, for the opening scenes in the film um, of, you know, the Nairobi desert, I think it is. Um, they had scans of that at 5,000 K, you know, 5K resolution, 5,000 pixels. And I was given the scans of the illustrations and scans of Christiana's art again at about 5,000 pixels each. So the files were huge. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, I was just allowed to have a bit of fun. Um, and Jan came and, and, uh, and reviewed three or four different versions, um, until we got to what they were after and what they were happy with. And, uh, and it was a, a real thrill to be able to go to Frankfurt to the launch of the exhibition and see my work there alongside, you know, the, the designs and work of real genius people who've worked on the film, you know, costume designers and, and people who, you know, Doug Trumbull and people like that, who, you know, people who actually deserve their credit. And there's a screen with my name on it, which I was flabbergasted at and thought how, you know, what an honor, um, you know, to, to have that opportunity. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a real thrill to be asked and approached to do that. Very kind of the family and, and the museum to trust me with, um, finding a kind of unique way to showcase these images rather than, you know, maybe just printing them and putting them out in a series of frames or. Sure, or like sure. That. Well, if I may be so bold, it does sound to me like you've earned the trust that, uh, the family and the estate have, uh, uh, granted and, uh, I, I don't think that's presumptuous to say your, you know, your, your aim is true. And, uh, from what I can tell and I mean, for what my opinion is worth, you know, your heart's in the right place. And, uh, that's what it's all about, uh, in regards to an ongoing appreciation of Stanley Kubrick. And, you know, I, I think it's great that, uh, you've been able to do so much great work, uh, to help, uh, you know, kind of carry uh, his legacy into the new millennium because I can speak on behalf of my friends who help, you know, we all produce this together. Well, Stephen produces it. I'm belaboring the point, but I I speak on behalf of my friends at Kubrick's Universe when I say that um, that's what it's all about for us. We uh, do see a certain responsibility, and of course there's a great joy that comes with that responsibility but mm-hmm. there is a, a a mission statement uh in getting the podcast done right because you know whether we like it or not there will come a point when we've all shuffled off this mortal coil gone through the stargate and gone back to being star children <laughs> ourselves and you know hopefully there will be uh, a lecturer at some point you know way off in the distant future who says well these guys you know made this podcast and uh you know your homework your assignment uh you know for this week is to <laughs> listen to episodes numbers blah 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 and you know it's yeah, a, it's, I, could, it's, I could definitely see that happening yeah it isn't it just a joy to to get to do that kind of thing it is it that's yeah. what i'm trying to say it yeah. really is and it's uh you know it's our honor 
in any way to be associated with it because each of us have come to Stanley Kubrick uh, through our own means and at our own points along the way in life. And I'm sure Stephen and Mark and James, uh, we all do this podcast together. Like I was trying to say, we came to Stanley uh, through our own uh, prisms, if you will. And yeah. and I know for Mark, it was also The Shining. I'd, I'd love to bring you in for a second, Mark. And if you have any uh, thoughts, because we're kind of focusing on The Shining today. Um, is there anything you want to ask or uh, discuss with uh, uh, with Howie? Because, of course, it is getting close to tea time. And I'm sure you're a bit peckish. We want to, we want to let you go soon. Yeah, Mark, are you there? Yeah, I have one specific question, which is I, I always have wanted uh, to see the uh, copy of the novel, The Shining, that Stanley marked up and put all his notes yeah. in. And I guess my question is, did you see that, Howie? And <laughs> What I would really love to see is that come out as a special edition with all his notes there, so you can read the novel and then see what Stanley is thinking about it. Thank you, and that's my question. Oh wow! <laughs> um, there are various versions of the the novel in the archive. There was one which I found, which um, I only saw on my last visit, actually, in the summer when I was with Lee, which was of this incredible version with a very metallic, shiny cover, um, which uh, which I was rather taken with. I thought it was quite a nice design. Um, why it was in with Kubrick stuff, I'm not sure, um, because obviously it had been published by that point. Um, and he was looking at the film, the novel before it had even been published. Um, the version that's got his own handwritten annotated notes um, from what I've seen is not bound like a book. It's um, it's as if it was kind of given to him as a manuscript kind of document um, pre-binding and pre-publishing. And yeah, I've, I've held that, the one with all his personal handwritten notes directly on the page. Um, I've scanned every page of it. Um, and read many of the notes, um, which are some of them are extremely astute, um, and very funny as well. Um, approaching it from the point of view as from a visual storyteller who is reading a book, which obviously is about the written word and written description. Um, and there is, there is some wonderful, wonderful notes where you can instantly see the thought process that he's having about thinking about what's going to work visually on film um, and what parts are superfluous. And um, I don't think they'll, I don't think they'll ever publish those notes because some of them are not very complimentary of the text. <laughs> um, because he, because he's of the opinion that they're not going to work for, you know, a visual audience, which is mm. the job of a filmmaker, clearly. So it's not that it was a, a snub or anything like that, um, clearly, but it, he was just, you know, getting through the system of this works, that doesn't work, that's no good, drop this bit, you know, and, and also, you know, I like this and I like that. Um, and, you know, my favorite, favorite comment of Stanley's on the manuscript, um, 
it, which is where there's page after page after page about how the um the, the heating in the hotel works and it goes on about the boiler and, and things like this hmm. and and eventually stanley writes in the margin fuck the boiler um, <laughs> <laughs> and it and that's it's my favorite stanley annotation because it just it made me re- like you guys did it made me laugh i thought it was hilarious because that's he just so he gone through page after page just kind of going no no crossing a bit out no and then eventually he must have got so pissed off by this thing he just goes fuck right. the boiler <laughs> all right quick follow-up uh diane johnson said that they boiled down at one point, no pun intended. Uh, when they were, <laughs> sorry, when they were construct, when they're constructing the uh, screenplay, they boiled things down to index cards, and each index card would say what was going to happen in that scene, and then they would bring these to their meetings together and discuss them, and some of them would get thrown out. Are those in the archives? I have never seen any index cards. I've seen lots and lots of treatments where the ending in particular changes multiple times throughout the treatments i've seen lots of script drafts where they have completely different endings there were some of them the early ones scatman carruthers his character comes back and he's evil um and uh, and ones where everyone gets murdered and things like that and all sorts of other things going on and vastly different to what we ended up with yeah, I mean the the notes are very very good, but you can see, you uh, excuse me, you can see very clearly the angle that he's going for in in when he's making these notes. You know, he's it's it's a very sharp analytical mind who is obviously deciding this works and that doesn't work. Mm. Yeah. Well, and of course, you know, Lee uh, published uh, three Polaroids and their respective script pages of the excised final hospital scene um i know more than three oh gosh you're killing me you're killing me i scanned them for him oh you're killing me yeah there's more than three (laughs) um not that many more i've got to say they're continuity polaroids taken by june randall um she used to take continuity polaroids um uh to help her with all the you know keeping everything the same but uh yeah there's there's about i can't remember how many there are maybe seven or eight or maybe a few more um, of those scenes. Uh, is it okay to ask if uh, any of them or all of them will be in the forthcoming Tashin book? I don't know is the answer. Um, uh, I would assume that there will be um, some of those images um, appearing uh, in the Tashin book, but I don't know the answer to that. Mm. Um, well, any final words, uh, on the book about The Shining, because this is, you know, this is a big one. This is the sort of monolith for The Shining, if you will, for uh, fans and and people like us who, you know, read uh, a great deal about Stanley. Any final thoughts you might have about uh, what it was like to be involved and uh, uh, what you anticipate the release to be like? Yeah, uh, I don't want to overstep the mark because it's Lee's project. I know that um, the manuscript has been written by Jonathan Rinsler. Jonathan Rinsler was the in-house writer of the making of the Star Wars films for mm-hmm. uh, Lucasfilm. And they're probably the highest acclaimed books on the making of those films um, because, of course, many have been written. But here's a 
his are said to be the very best. And he's also written on the making of Alien, and I think he also did Indiana Jones as well. So Jonathan had worked with Lee to write the text of the manuscript. Um, so I'm very, very excited about just how high quality the the text is. And also having had the chance to read that, I, I know it's exceptionally interesting, exciting, um, and really the detail is there's so much stuff that every single page there's things that people will never have known um, mm. about the making of the film and um you know i cannot praise the research that lee has done and um and the knowledge that he has gathered from every single source he can to make that happen uh enough i just i just think it's it's really gripping um and it's a very very exciting book and he tells the story in a really interesting way that, you know, you want to find out what happened next after you, you get to the end of a section. Right, so, right. Um, so, yeah, I think the book is a, is a really gripping piece of work. I don't know about the design and layout at all. I don't know what images are going to be included. Um, about five years ago, Lee told me that he had about 600 photos um, from one source that had never been seen before. Um, and that's just from one person and it was around five to 600 photos. Um, and he showed me some of them and they were amazing. And I know that there will be some of those. And I, like I said, because I don't know what the content of the images is going to be, I wouldn't be able to put a number on it, but there will obviously be some of those making an appearance in this book. And that's just the little bit that I know, because I know that Lee has so much more, um, and he has done such an amazing uh, job of bringing together so many different people's personal archives and and getting their permission to share uh, the the content with with hmm. the book in the book. Hmm. Well, as far as I'm concerned, you know, Toshin uh, should probably make this a coffee table book, and by coffee table book, I mean. They could literally make it bigger than my coffee table. <laughs> Just install four legs on it. I will throw my coffee table out and put it right in front of my couch. Um, I <laughs> they mean, they have actually done that with a previous book. Yan has it. It comes with its own table. It's an appreciation of Eastern art. Um, and the book is ginormous and it's so big. It <laughs> come, it comes with its own table and yeah. So they've, that's, already, they've that's got brilliant. form on that. Let's let's just tell them to do the same. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, it's not like yeah, they're uh, reinventing the, uh, the the coffee table book. <laughs> they've already done it, um, and why not do it for The Shining? I mean, yeah. if if they're gonna make it that size, they're gonna fetch a pretty penny, as you might say. And you know, what the hell? I'll sell a kidney. <laughs> well, I I did get told how much this one this Asian art book was. Um, and it had far too many zeros at the end of it. <laughs> it was a very, very expensive book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we have spoken a little bit about how everyone came to, to find Kubrick, and I didn't mention that at all, other than, uh, you know, I started working with the family about 10 years ago. Um, but I've got a, a nice little story about my upbringing, um, which may explain... Uh, and how I have come to all of this, maybe. Um, my father was a, a Kubrick fan, and 
when I was two or three years old and at Sunday school, um, he came to collect me from Sunday school once wearing a T-shirt with the poster from A Clockwork Orange on it. Ah. And when we when we got home, my mum told him off for picking us up from the church. Oh, gosh. <laughs> wearing yes. a Clockwork Orange I get T-shirt, it. which I had get not it. occurred to him at all. Um, and uh, being the age I was, didn't have a clue what on earth they were going on about. Right, uh, and, right. and my, my parents aren't in the least bit religious. So my mum wasn't doing it on those grounds, I think, other than she just was kind of like, you just can't do that, which I thought right. was rather, Thinking back on it, I thought was very funny. But my, <laughs> my dad was obsessed. He was a, an obsessive on 2001 and an obsessive of A Clockwork Orange. And we had five copies of the Clockwork Orange soundtrack on vinyl, all of them oh, no kidding. releases. And he used to play them because he was a big fan of Wendy Carlos as well. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up with all this strange electronic Beethoven Moog synthesizer stuff um, from about you know the age of four um, onwards listening to this. Um and so, yeah, the, and then the first time I watched a Kubrick film it was because he introduced me to 2001 when I was eight years old. Um, and then we went to see it and Mayfair, I think, in the Curzon cinema when the new print had just been released on 70 millimeter. Um, I think when I was about 10. Uh, but we also had a copy of A Clockwork Orange on VHS, which had been given to him by one of uh, my mum's cousins who are Dutch. Uh, and it had been recorded from Dutch TV. Of where, course, right. Where you were allowed to screen it. Right, right, right. And so I think about the age of eight, I was curious to see what it was, and I put it on. And at the age of eight, I just kind of thought, I don't get it, it's weird. <laughs> and probably pressed the fast-forward button to mm-hmm. see if anything exciting happened. Um, <laughs> but I remember hearing the music again and thinking, I know this, without, you know, but you know, at that age, not really being able to have linked the two. Yeah, but that's that's great. I mean, coming to Stanley Kubrick by way of music. Yeah. On on a personal note to me as a lifelong musician and from a family of musical people, that is is something that not had not quite occurred to me in the way you articulated it. And I think that's yeah, fascinating. I think that was my introduction to Kubrick was the music. And my dad can say all the words to Ode to Joy in German without knowing what a single word means, because wow. he can't speak a word of German. <laughs> but because of the soundtrack to A Clockwork Orange, right. he, he knows it. It's hilarious. So um, so my introduction to Stanley Kubrick was was through vinyl records and through Wendy Carlos um, and, uh, and through my father's obsession. So I thought you might like that. I, I love that. That's great. I completely get that, because uh, great films and great music are kindred spirits in the sense that there is organic breath taking place. It's dynamic passages. It's, it's inhalation and expiration. And you can't, in other words, have everything ratcheted up top notch all the time. And you can't have everything too subdued throughout. Um, but the organic, uh, films and music, the ones that truly stand the test of time, not the least of which would be Stanley's, you know, they do breathe. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. There's, there's real emotion and story and that's in the music as well as in, in the film itself. Yeah. Very much so. The narrative is there. Hmm. Well, I have one final question and, uh, we love to 
ask this uh, because there really is no right answer. And if you'd like to take a moment to think of your response, feel free. Um, my final question is, Howie, who is Stanley Kubrick? Oh, that's a mean question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's what's weird is that I have approached the things that I have done related to Stanley Kubrick from the perspective of someone who I wouldn't say was a fan. Because I, you know, when I started working with Jan and then working with Christiana and doing things with the family and making this oral history it wasn't because I was a fan. Um, it was because I was interested in how films were made. Um, and so for me, Stanley Kubrick is probably the greatest filmmaker because every time I watch one of his films, I find something new that I have learned about the art of filmmaking. Anytime I talk to someone, and I, as you've heard, I've had a, a great time and the privilege talking to others who were there making the films just as you have, um, I learn something. Um, and every time I talk to others who appreciate his films, I gain further appreciation too. And it's rare that I know of another filmmaker who I could attribute all of those three things to. So I would say that Stanley Kubrick, for me, is the greatest filmmaker. I love I it. If that makes any sense or not. Of course it does. Of go. course it does. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. And it's a brilliant uh, response to a rather open-ended question. <laughs> a mean question, but I like it. <laughs> well, you know, that again, that's why I tried to deflate the meanness of it, as you put it, by saying there's no right you. answer. Thank you. you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> but there is no right answer. And, you know, were there to be one, you've given as, you know, brilliant a right answer, because it's personal, it comes from you. You know, for so many of us, uh, there's uh, a joy to studying, if you will, all manner of films, and there have been many great filmmakers, you know, and then there's Stanley. Yeah. And his work, yeah. his art. Yeah, there's a reason why his stuff stands separate from what else is out there oh yes oh yes yeah howie on behalf of kubrick's universe um our listeners and especially stephen rigg mark lentz and james marinaccio uh who do this all together um i can't thank you enough for taking your time and sharing your insights with us this has just been great a real treat thank you howie thank you it's been a pleasure um is there anything else anyone would like to uh, say, Stephen and Mark, if you're there? Yeah, I'd just like to say thanks, uh, Howie. Uh, I've been aware of your work probably since around 2015 with the uh, Staircases doc and the 35th Shining event. And it's been lovely to finally get together and uh, the, 
love to hear your dad's version of Ode to Joy, <laughs> if that's ever possible. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. I, w- I don't think I'd want to torture anyone with that one. <laughs> Come on. No, Howie, 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 this is your mission. You have to record him. Get it. I don't know if you have a Samsung oh, or an iPhone. Just use that little voice memos app. <laughs> we will put it in the show. I'll, I'll run it through a vocoder for you as well, especially. But <laughs> Oh, my gosh. That's great. That's great stuff. All right, Mark, anything, brother? Yeah, Howie, I just want to thank you, too. And also uh, thank you for being a content creator that us fans get to consume and learn more mm. About our favorite director, I really appreciate the time that you've spent doing yeah, it's, that. It's it's a lot of fun for me. So it's it's you know it doesn't feel like work when you get to have fun, does it? Speaking with director and shining historian Lee Unkrich very soon, and you will be able to hear more about the new Shining book that you just heard Howie talk about. The limited edition of just 1,000 copies is now on sale directly from the Toshin website. If you haven't, go check out our one-of-a-kind group, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, aka SCAS, on Facebook. And beware of imitations and accept no substitutes, for we are a private group with over 25,000 worldwide members and growing. While you're at it, also search for our SCAS YouTube channel. Go check it out. We also have a Kubrick's Universe Facebook page and a new Kubrick's Universe YouTube channel, which we are currently populating with all our previous episodes. We have some marvelous guests coming up in the new year, so stay tuned. Hey, by the way, this show marks the end of our first five years. If you've known about us and tuned in all along, thank you. If you've discovered our show while navigating your own hedge maze of Kubrick, well, thank you too. And welcome. We love doing this podcast and bringing it to you. So thank you all for tuning in. We really do appreciate you sharing time with us. On behalf of co-creator, producer, editor, and all-around bon vivant, Stephen Rigg, our research assistants, all past and future collaborators, we hope you had a wonderful holiday season and wish you and yours a very happy new year. I am your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong, saying thank you again. See you in season six with all the best people. I'm not
It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.